Welcome to the Grattan Institute podcast channel. This is a recording of one of Grattan's public events. Well, good evening, everyone. Um, great to see so many people here tonight. So my name's Deborah Rosenfeld, and I'm the head of um, library sector engagement here at State Library Victoria. Uh, of course, um, I wish to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we are meeting, and I want to pay my respects to their elders, past and present, and to the Aboriginal elders of other communities who, be, who may be represented here today. I'd like to give a, a warm welcome to uh, friends of the State Library, members of the Grattan Institute, and tonight's speakers, Danielle Wood and John Davey. A little more about them uh, later on, though I suspect you already know quite a lot. Uh, <laughs> it's my great pleasure to welcome you all, every one of you, to the policy pitch presented by the Grattan Institute and State Library Victoria. The policy pitch is always topical. In the series this year, we've covered issues from uh, summer blackouts, the private health insurance crisis in the news again quite recently, dental care, subject dear to my heart, the 2019 federal election, and I think I was here when you um, did the policy pitch around that, and rising housing costs. We've seen uh, engaged audiences all year long, and I'm sure you're all going to be thoroughly engaged tonight. Uh, we're looking forward also to seeing many of you next year as we continue to present intriguing and challenging discussions in the newly refurbished State Library. So this is my cue to wax lyrical, as I just have been with Danielle and John, about the State Library's redevelopment. Um, we embarked in 2015 on a project called Vision 2020 a redevelopment project to transform our public spaces, programs and facilities to better meet the changing needs of the community. It was an $88.1 million project supported by funding from the Victorian government primarily, but also very considerable philanthropic contributions. So I'm delighted to let you know that the completed redeveloped spaces will be opening to the public in only two days' time on Thursday, the 5th of December at 10 a.m. So you all have to come back on Thursday morning. And it will be worth the effort. Uh, just let me tell you, I've just been talking about the beautiful Queen's Hall, the original um, library building built in the 1850s, and the upper level for the last 10 years or so, longer perhaps, has been closed because it really wasn't... Uh, fit for use, and uh, it has been beautifully restored to, to its original. It's had many facelifts since the 1850s, and each one of them, I think, made it look worse. Um, this refurbishment <laughs> and this facelift has actually taken it back to the original. So the original skylights are now revealed, so you have light right throughout the building. The original stencil work on the columns is now there for you to see. Not re-stenciled, but the original stencil work. The paintwork of years and years and years has been peeled back. 
beautiful old furniture. Um, it is an extraordinary space, which will be for all community during uh, the daytime and then an event space at night. So, at night. so if for no other reason, you must come back very soon to see Queen's Hall. But we also have a new conversation quarter, and who knows, next year an event like this might take place in the conversation quarter. We have, for the first time at the State Library, an entire quarter, 750 square metres, and some levels up, um, dedicated to a children's space, a children's learning space at the State Library. We've got an ideas quarter and a creative quarter. So big new spaces for the or refurbished spaces offering new services at the State Library to go alongside the traditional services that we, we continue to offer. So please do come back in the next few weeks. So the library's um, use and visitation continues to grow year on year. Uh, goodness me, it seemed like I started here only yesterday and visitation was at around 750,000 per year. We're now up around 1.8 million visitors on site every year and we're expecting when we've unveiled the new spaces, we'll be well over the 2 million visitors um, a year to the library with another 4.9 million visitors coming um, to us online. So the library's audience spans all sectors of the community, includes researchers, students, families, young and lifelong learners, culture creators and seekers and regional Victorians. So again, please do come and visit our new spaces this Thursday and uh, continue to attend programs and activities. So to this evening's marvellous activity, it's that time of year again, isn't it? Um, as the holidays approach, as Christmas comes upon us, out come the summer reading lists. I'm sure that on the weekend, some of you would have um, got the reading list out of the, um, the Age Good Weekend sub Supplement. We're going to have another equally impressive list tonight, I am sure. Uh, we're about to learn about this year's annual summer reading list for the Prime Minister, no less launched by Grattan Institute in partnership with Readings Bookstore. It's an eclectic list uh, from secret ballots to cities and Tories to uh, Margaret Atwood's The Testaments. The list includes books that play uh, a critical uh, role in Australia's public debates and it's a must read, not only for the Prime Minister. I wonder if he will read those books. Anyway, but for all Australians. It's a great selection of reading material for the holidays and I look forward to hearing more about it very soon. So with that in mind, I'm pleased to introduce our speakers this evening. Uh, first of all, Danielle, Program Director of the Budget Policy and Institutional Reform Programs uh, at the Grattan Institute. Previously, Danielle worked at the ACCC as the Principal Economist and Director of Merger Investigations, as a Senior Consultant at NERA Economic Consulting, and as a Senior Research Economist at the Productivity Commission. She's the National and Victorian Chair of the Women in Economics Network. She sits on the Victorian and Central Council for the Economic Society of Australia. John Daly really does need no introduction, but it's here. CEO of the Grattan Institute since it was founded 11 years ago. He's published extensively on economic reform priorities, budget policy, tax reform, 
housing affordability and generational inequality. He's worked at the University of Oxford, the Victorian Department of Premier and Cabinet, consulting firm McKinsey & Co, ANZ Bank, in fields including law, public policy, strategy and finance. So please all join me in welcoming Danielle and John. Over to you. Well, thank you, um... Thank you, Deborah, for that very kind introduction, uh, and uh, great to have you all here. Um, so tonight, as you know, we're here to talk about the um, 2019 summer reading list for the Prime Minister that Grattan has assembled. Uh, for those of you who haven't been uh, to this event before, I should provide just a tinsy-wincy bit of background about uh, what how this came about. Um, it really is true uh, in the United Kingdom, at least, there's a kind of passionate debate amongst the Cabinet Office as to what book should be dropped into the Prime Minister's um, uh, red bag as he goes on his um, annual Christmas holiday. Um, we could probably spend a very profitable five minutes um, speculating about what might be a peculiarly appropriate this year, um, but we might pass over that. Um, uh, these days, of course, you know, information is much more freely available and uh, questions are asked. And so I've noticed over the last six or seven years that Australian prime ministers are routinely asked and these days routinely answer as to what they're planning to read over the holidays. I regret to say that very few of them get examined about it afterwards. Um, I do note that, in fact, most years, over the last couple of years, the Australian prime minister has had on his, uh, and in one case, of course, her lists of things to read uh, over the holidays, um, something that Grattan had on its list. But of course, as a public policy think tank, we are acutely aware that correlation is not the same thing as causation. Uh, Anyway, but we would like to think that maybe it helps. So we certainly put this together as a, um, and the criteria that we apply is it has to be published in the last 12 months, it has to be eminently readable, uh, and it has to have something to say uh, about, um, that might be of interest to people who are interested in politics, in policy, and in power. Uh, so, with that in mind, um, you uh, all have a little publication I hope that you might have picked up on the way in um, that uh, summarises the list. But the first of these this year uh, is Judith Brett's um, From Secret Ballot to Democracy Sausage. Now, Judith Brett, um, there was big debate internally at Grattan about whether we could put Judith Brett on the list yet again. I think this is the fourth Judith Brett book that we've put on, on the list, uh, which makes her a serial offender um, a long way in front of the competition. Uh, but the problem is she just really does write really good books um, relative to those criteria. Uh, and this was one of those ones that I think as soon as you picked it up sort of had to go on. So, Danny, tell us about it. Well, I agree it had to go on. It's a um, – look, it's – it's delightful. It's a kind of a, a romp through the electoral history of Australia. Um, it's something actually I have to be embarrassed and admit I didn't know much about, but really at the sort of the end of the 19th century, earliest 20th century, we were world leaders in terms of electoral reform in this country. Um, we were very early adopters of uh, manhood suffrage, so men without land being able to vote, at least in the lower houses of the state parliaments. South Australia was the second place in the world to give women the vote, as most of us would know, but also the first place 
um, that allowed women to stand for elections and there's a quite a fun little story about how that came about, which we might come back to. Um, we essentially invented the secret ballot in its current form um, that, you know, people would go to the ballot box and fill out their paper and in order to kind of get the throughput um, on voting day, we came up with the little sort of compartmentalised ballot boxes that we're all familiar with today, which I thought, you know, in terms of sort of practical inventions, got to be up there with the Hills Hoist. Well, it was, it was called the Australian ballot. The Australian ballot, in, Internationally, right. it was known as the Australian ballot because, of course, in, in proper countries, in proper countries, then you kind of showed up to the returning officer and you declared that you were voting for... Well, actually, you wouldn't have declared that you were voting for Daniel Wood. You would have declared <laughs> that you were voting for John Daly uh, and that you were not voting for Tony Wood uh, and everyone would cheer appropriately uh, and, and then you moved on. Well, and, so and the Australian ballot was seen as being very un-English. It was sort of unacceptable and secretive to go in and scribble on your piece of paper. What did those colonials have to hide? Indeed. <laughs> if they had nothing to hide, they'd be open about it. <laughs> and I did like the, the story of the early voting processes held at the pubs where, you know, essentially who you would vote for would be who would buy you the most drinks, which, you know, seemed like an incredibly great way to sort out the democratic process. Yeah. But you're right. I mean, it was, it was incredibly... Um, it, it, it was so untrammeled by what the rest of the world did. It was sort of like, oh, well, this seems like a good idea, let's just do it. And you're right, on just any number of dimensions. Well, I mean, it went, you know, much further than that in terms of, you know, we adopted compulsory voting, we adopted preferential voting. Um, the rest of the world didn't perhaps follow quite so keenly in terms of those dimensions, but we were, you know, really innovators and incredibly progressive in this space. We held elections on a Saturday. I mean, we forget that's actually, that was a big deal and a big innovation. Mm -hmm. And I guess all of that led to the democracy sausage. I mean, we again, we forget that, in fact, that is an Australian invention. <laughs> and, and, and not coincidental. So I think one of the things that Judith does really well is explain how one thing kind of led to another and they fit together. So if you're going to have universal suffrage and then you're going to make it compulsory, then you sort of have to make it on a Saturday rather than on a weekday because otherwise it's too hard to vote. And if everybody is going to vote and it's on a weekend, then it all becomes a bit of a, you know, a social event mm. and then you wind up selling sausages. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, you know, what's beautiful about the way she sets it out is the way she... Um, really celebrates the characters that are behind it as well. So some of the, the early activists for women's suffrage and... Um, Catherine Spence, who's on the $5 note, not only an activist for women's suffrage, but also a big fan of preferential voting and, you know, running around still in her 60s doing seminars on why we should move to preferential voting. Um, the, the bureaucrats like Boothby um, behind the fact that we have independent administration of elections and, you know, he was very comprehensive in the way he put together the electoral role. Um, you know, they're all fantastic stories that I think, you know, we probably don't know enough about as a country. Well, I think the other thing that's really terrific about this is, is and, and this is, I think, one of the reasons why Judith's so interested in us as a historian, is our kind of, to the extent we have a cultural myth about Australia and Australian identity these days, it's, you know, it's sort of all about Anzacs and, you know, nation forged on the fields of battle and all of the rest of it, which is, given that we're, you know, at best bit players in most of those battles anyway, is slightly odd. Um, and her point is actually, you know, the point at which Australia was formed as a nation, we were really distinctive. Uh, and we weren't distinctive about the way that we fought battles, but we were very distinctive about how we set up democracy. 
That's right. I mean, it really does sort of, it makes you feel proud. Um, she's very open on the parts in which we should feel less proud. Um, so even though Aboriginals had the right to vote in most states, when we became a federation, um, the initial voting bill that passed did not give them that right, even though that wasn't the original intention, but it was amended when it went through the parliament. Um, and it took a very long time to fix that. I mean, the fact that those rights weren't reinstated until after the Second World War, and, and I didn't even realise that it actually wasn't compulsory for Indigenous people to vote until 1983. Um, so it took an incredibly long time to, to fix up that initial aberration. And, you know, I think that probably um, it takes the gloss off a little bit, um, but there is still a lot here to be proud of. But as the person running Grattan's institutional reform program, it would be fair to say that we are not leading the world in quite the same way. What do you think's changed? <laughs> Indeed. Um, look, I, you know, you couldn't help but sort of reflect on that um, reading it. And, you know, if we think about what are the, you know, important issues for democracy and decision making in the current environment, obviously one that we've spent a time reflecting on um, is the role of sort of vested interests in the policy making process and how do we set the rules up around money in politics and donations and lobbying. Um, the work we did in our Who's in the Room report uh, last year pretty clearly showed that we are not <laughs> world leaders in this space. We're, we're really lagging, um, particularly at the Commonwealth government level. Some of the states have actually introduced quite significant reforms in this space. Um, so what's lacking? I think political will. Mm. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to explain why it is that we've fallen so far behind. You know, all the impediments to introducing changes here um, exist elsewhere as well, but we're, we're simply not on the cutting edge anymore. Yeah, we were better at it 120 years ago. That probably takes us to kindred. Thanks, Charles. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, kindred. Tell me, what did, you, what did you think about kindred? Well, this was probably the sleeper on the list for me, and I've even um, pulled off my cover because it got so battered. <laughs> um, you know, it, it probably wouldn't have been a book that I would normally pick up. Um, you know, I'm not very outdoorsy, and it's very much about nature and the love of nature, And but it's just beautiful. It was really, really lovely. I, um, The author, Kate Legg, um, sort of first chapter and the final chapter talks about her connection with this story and why she wrote the book, which I thought was a very, you know, a very nice device. But she talks at the time about being um, concerned as a non-historian, being able to kind of pull together this book on, you know, what is a history story of how we came to have the Cradle Mountain National Park and the, the two key protagonists behind it. Um, but, you know, to me it's actually an advertisement for maybe why we need more journalists writing history. <laughs> it was, um, you know, it's beautifully researched. There's a whole tonne of primary sources in there but it's just just written so well and hangs together so seamlessly. Yeah. And I think it, it weaves together, I think, I mean, quite effortlessly a series of different things, you know, effectively a love story um, uh, between uh, two people, um, a, a picture of Australia in 1910, 1920, uh, and the sort of burgeoning science and naturalism and I guess what we would today call a, a biology and, net, and, and, and ecology movement, um, uh, the creation of a national park, um, what it was, you know, uh, some stories about early um, uh, politics in Australia as well as essentially, yes, these quite beautiful descriptions um, 
of of Cradle Mountain and the areas around it and of walking in it um, as well. And and to sort of pull all of that together in a way that doesn't sort of feel as though you're sort of clunking from one to the other is quite an achievement. Yeah, I think it partly, I mean, obviously partly her incredible skill as a writer, but, you know, the fact that those two central characters are just so compelling. Um, you know, an incredibly unusual couple by the standards of the time. You know, she's, was it 11 years older than him? Um, you know, she's an Australian from, from Tasmania. He's a sort of um, Austrian man, you know, loves coffee and garlic and kissing hands and, you know, all of those things that would have been quite confronting for people at the time. Um, they spent a lot of their time together living apart. Um, so he was there sort of building the chalet at, at Cradle Mountain. She was running the farm. Um, and, you know, there was some, some quite interesting observations they made in the book that, you know, obviously they were quite well loved and accepted into the community, but they would have absolutely been a sort of source of gossip and um, interest as well. And she talked about how, you know, she'd get her letters from him and, you know, they'd be opened and there'd be these sort of sticky fingerprints all over them as if they'd sort of been passed around the town and everyone sort of nosing into their business, um, which I thought was a fantastic observation. But, you know, they weren't the sort of people that cared. They just kind of got on with it yeah. and did their thing. I mean, she was clearly quite a fantastic so she was, you know, this is 1911. She's the only woman who 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 delivers a paper at the Victorian Naturalist Society, which you know um, sort of sounds like a bunch of you know amateur bird watchers, but was clearly actually, if you were halfway seriously interested in science and ecology at the time, then you were a member uh, in Victoria. Um, and uh, there she was delivering her paper, um, and there was um, Gustav hearing it. Uh, and the other thing I think, you know, that's lovely, you know. I've discovered, you know, despite policy and finance and all the rest of it, you know, I probably am a romantic at heart, and it, <laughs> and it, and it appealed to that. I mean, this is clearly one of those love stories which you sort of think, well, of course they wound up together. Like anything else would have been a tragedy. <laughs> exactly. No, it was it was very much a relationship of equals, and you know, it was a love story between them. But it's also, you know, really about their love of of nature and the bush and the way they um, wanted to share that with the rest of Australia. Yeah, and we're determined to make it happen. So um, uh, Gustav um, uh, decides he's going to make it into a national park. They're inspired by what's happened in the United States, the creation of Yosemite and so on. Uh, and they take literally hundreds of, as they call them, lantern slides, so those old-fashioned photographs, um, and are showing them uh, in every town hall that he can get to in Tasmania. Um, uh, and you know, apparently, you know, with the oohs and ahs from the from the crowd as they as they see these extraordinary um, pictures. I mean, it is not hard to take a pretty good picture of Cradle Mountain. Um, uh, it is a pretty beautiful place, but of course, they're also very interested in the ecology of it, the plants, um, the animals. Um, many of you know, they sort of considered it a bad. It was a bad exhibition uh, um, expedition. You know, they had only come home with a hundred samples of so far unidentified plants. Um, you know, there's no doubt many um, uh, biologists these days who sort of wish for those days where you could just sort of go wandering and come home with 100 new species. Um, but he was determined to make this happen uh, and, you know, roamed up and down New South, uh, Tasmania and then, of course, masterstroke, masterstroke, got three Tasmanian ministers to come with him to the chalet, walk them around, and I guess from then on it was sort of inevitable. 
It was not a sort of an insignificant ask either. You know, the process of actually getting to this place sounded to me quite um, horrific. You know, I had to go to a number of towns and then I think you had to walk the last six miles basically through, through bog to get there before the road was built. And unfortunately, they both passed away before the road. They actually got to see the road um, open up. But, you know, really they have created, you know, an incredibly important, um, you know, place and industry for, yep. for Tasmania. Uh, and I should confess, I actually wound up reading this book um, as I was going to Cradle Mountain and at Cradle Mountain, which is entirely coincidental, but it's just how it came. Um, in fact, I didn't even realise it was really about Cradle Mountain until I was sort of halfway there. Um, I thought, oh, well, you know, I'm sure I meant to do this. So um, it is... Um, uh, if you can read this and not want to go there, I'm impressed. Um, uh, and I'd just like to acknowledge Kate Legg is, I think, somewhere here. Um, so thank you. And it's great to have you here. And thank you for a marvellous book. It is quite fantastic. <laughs> so um, that takes us from the sort of history um, and the great outdoors um, to worrying about cities uh, and Alain Berteau's um, Order Without Design. Now, I would have thought that this book would appeal to an economist. As, as you would know, I'm a fake economist. I don't, I don't get invitations to a lot of the things that, um, you know, real economists like Danny get invitations to. Um, so I would have thought it would appeal to a real economist. Well, it did appeal to a real economist. I appreciate it. There was lots of there was lots of maps and lots of charts, which economists will always love, but do not let that put you off. Oh, and supply um, and demand curves. Oh, I have to admit I didn't finish, so I might not have got to the supply <laughs> and demand curve, but I know how that works, so that's all right. Um, no, look, it's, it, it does appeal to the ego of an economist because essentially it's a plea for urban planners to talk more to urban economists and to take into account um, economic principles in the way they do their jobs. And I have to say as, um, you know, economics is a little bit on the nose in the public debate at the moment, but there were some absolutely fantastic illustrations in there of just how badly things can go wrong when you don't take into account supply and demand and incentives and trade-offs and all of the things that economists are actually good at taking into account. Um, so it was, you know, this, this man has spent 60 years of his life working in the planning game. It did read a little bit to me like there was a lot of angry typing at, you know, all the kind of frustrating <laughs> people and idiots he'd met along the way and he was sort of setting the record straight. But, you know, he makes the point incredibly powerful, powerfully, I think, about how we can design cities better, but we need to bring the expertise of these two groups together. Well, I think, I mean, he's, he's in fact a planner by trade. So um, he's employed um, all around the world. Um, uh, as a planner, worked for the World Bank. It does tell a lovely story about his very first real job um, in Algeria. Uh, and he's been sent there by the French government um, to, you know, as a relatively junior official to basically tick off on planning applications in some city, you know, not uh, quite a long way from anywhere else in Algeria. And he's basically told that he has to apply the code. Uh, and the code is basically the planning code for Paris. Uh, and, and he gets uh, the recommendations on how he should treat every application comes to him. And basically, they're all to basically say, refuse all of these applications because 
the very, very junior local officials have dutifully applied the code. Uh, and, of course, the code says there's got to be some massive setback from the street and there's got to be enormous windows uh, and all the rest of it. And, of course, we're in Algeria. Um, and it's, you know, it's a desert and it's really hot. And it's got, you know, social norms around the fact that you build your houses right to the edge of the boundary and then you have an internal courtyard. Uh, and so, of course, the local you know, builders keep serving up these designs that do exactly that and the junior officials keep rejecting them. Uh, he fortunately goes to the um, almost but not quite as junior official as he and is in the next town and says, do I really have to do this? And and that person says, look, clearly it's stupid, don't bother. And so he then spends the next couple of years just ticking these things off and saying that'll be fine, irrespective of the French code. But it does illustrate how easy it is to apply planning rules that are completely inappropriate for a place and may well have had a perfectly sensible objective when they started but don't anymore. Yeah, the, the other example I loved was the Mumbai example and the, the garment factories. They had a you know really thriving garment industry actually quite in close to the city centre and as the economy opened up and um, China, China sort of opened up its economy and started to produce garments, um, a lot of the factories had to close down. They couldn't compete. Um, and they said, oh, you know, this is terrible. We're losing all these jobs. What are we going to do? Well, we're going to dictate that these factories and this land must be kept for garment making. Um, the city's growing, expanding. You know, people will be getting pushed further and further out into the fringes of this city while this absolutely prime land sits empty for 30 years and it's not till someone comes in and says, this is crazy that it actually, you know, they took away those rules and it started to get developed. So it just, you know, really highlights how things can go terribly wrong with very real consequences. Yeah, I mean, I identified it because I actually have been in a meeting in which we are talking about housing policy um, and it was a meeting that went for about two or three hours and I came out of it afterwards and I was talking to a very senior economist from one of our very senior economic institutions and he said to me, there were clearly two different kinds of people in that room. And he said, I'm not really sure that we understood each other very much because uh, it had essentially been a group of planners and a group of economists. Um, uh, and I think what this book does is explain why those two groups often talk past each other and it talks about the costs of doing so. Um, I mean, as a planner, he's extremely alive to the fact that planning does some good things and that and that you have to get some things right. And in particular, as he points out, if planners don't get the roads right and if they don't get the parks right, then you're in trouble uh, because those are two things that markets will never deliver um, and will never get right. You essentially do need some kind of planning or governance function to get your roads right and to get your parks right. Um uh, but then, interestingly, his argument is from then on, you know, by and large, planning often just gets in the way. Uh, and in particular, it imposes costs that are much higher than people realise. Uh, and, and I think, for example, picks up things like um, the costs of um, inclusionary zoning, which, of course, is, you know, very hot. Um, well, it's increasingly of interest to Australian governments, but he does talk in detail about how, you know, New York has really gone for it with inclusionary zoning and the results are truly dreadful. Um, uh, and the cost of it, uh, the way that it winds up ironically pushing um, people with low incomes out of the city, um, uh, the way it creates all of these distortions. Um, and in particular, in, in New York, it's got to the point where he picks on one particular development. Um, 
the the apartments that were part of the inclusionary zoning and therefore had to be essentially rented out at very low prices to people on typically incomes of $30,000 a year had market rents of $100,000 a year. And as he puts the question, so if you went to those people who were living in them and said, would you rather live in this apartment or would you rather I just gave you $100,000 a year extra, they might well be picking the latter. Indeed, that's what many of them want to do. What they want to do is effectively sublet their apartment for hundred, you know, for $99,000 a year uh, and then, you know, go and rent somewhere else for sort of $30,000 a year and then pocket the difference, which is totally rational. Uh, but it's one thing that they're not allowed to do. Indeed, they run around, you know, checking that people have got the identity cards when they're living in the apartments and that they match the person who's supposedly in it and their income and all the rest of it. Um, so I think it's it just picks out all of those examples and there's a lot of this going on in Australia. It's, I think, a really relevant book to us. Yeah, absolutely agree. I think um, perhaps it won't be beloved by planners. At the end he talks about that planners need to have less vision. They need to be less visionary and more managers and janitors, which, um, you know, probably won't appeal to the profession as a whole. But, you know, I think he makes some very sound points. Ironically, of course, this is the one that will probably appeal to our current Prime Minister as of, you know... Economic geographer. Economic geographer by trade, um, our, our Prime Minister as of the 3rd of December 2019. Um, uh Indeed, Scott is an economic geographer, so hopefully he, if no one else, will love the maps um, and the things uh, uh, and all of the pretty graphs, including the supply and demand curves. You don't have to spend too much time on those if you're not a real economist like me. Do you want to talk about the next one? Um, oh, yes. All right, so the next one... I was certainly grateful for, as I tried to get through six books in a very short period of time, is an essay rather than a book, um, The Strange Death of Tory Economic Thinking. Um, so it, I, I liked it because it was short, but I also liked it because I think it had a very um, interesting idea and observation at its core, which was um, essentially that the Conservative Party in Britain has shifted from a narrative based on economics um, and one that was very much shaped by the thinking of the, the, the Treasury Department um, to one that instead has been shaped by home affairs. Um, so we've gone from a world where we worry about um, incentives and nudges um, to a world where we think very much about how we can regulate and ban things and throw the baddies in jail. Um, and he gives a fantastic um, example. He said, you know, in the old days when we were talking about digital policy, we would have been talking about how do we harness the power of the internet um, to increase productivity across the economy and create jobs. And now we talk about, you know, how do we ban pornography and crack encryption and those sort of things. So it's a really sort of fundamental shift um, in the way in which that party is thinking and the way they're approaching all sorts of policy problems. Yes, and he's got a lovely example about how much these mindsets matter. Uh, so he talks about uh, a discussion that he was party to in which they were, they were talking about what do we do about the fact that lots of small businesses are being paid late? Uh, and someone says, well, why don't we have jail terms for late for, for late payers. And, 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 of course, he sits there and goes, you know, as someone, you know, steeped in economic thinking, you know, there are, you know, there are any number of reasons why you wouldn't think about that problem that way. But um, if you are coming from a home affairs view of the world, home office view of the world, 
then your tools are not incentives and taxes and regulate uh, and and um, uh, and markets. Your tools are you either ban things or you mandate them, um, and those are the tools that you think of yourself as having. Right. So a lot of issues start, you know, really taking on that kind of social prism. Um, rather than the economic one that we're used to. And I think, you know, he really makes the point that, you know, even if you think that the major concerns of the population are, you know, security and identity, um, you still need to have an economic narrative that that underpins that. And he really sees that as a, a big gap in the platform for the Tories. This was actually written under Theresa May, but, you know, I think we could safely say it equally applies under Boris Johnson. Um, and, of course, we do now have, if not a... Home Office, a Department of Home Affairs, which is more or less the same thing. Um, and you could perhaps see a few parallels in Australia. Um, uh, I think um, one of the things that I think really is worth looking at is reading this in the context of Alain Berteau's book um, because, you know, that's essentially the sort of division between, well, we'll mandate the result we want as opposed to we'll let markets, you know, work out what it is that people value the most and then let them do that. Uh, and I think Alain um, demonstrates, you know, you wind up with something a lot more like what people want at much lower costs if you basically don't mandate nearly so much. Uh, and I think this article really illustrates the way that we've we've got a, man, a mindset um, driven by this Increased status for the Department of Home for the Home for the Home Office in the UK, and arguably the Department of Home Affairs in Australia. That that means we approach problems a different way, and it might not be the most productive way to approach a number of the problems we have. So this whole list is basically a plea to put economists back in the centre of policy making where they should be. Well, of course, that does take us to the testaments, which I guess is sort of. Um, you know, like if you really let the Department of Home Affairs run things, then this is what you get. <laughs> is that why you put it on, Danny? Um, well, no. <laughs> I put it on because I think it's a cracking good read. Um, look, no, it's a... Um, probably many people in the audience have read um, A Handmaid's Tale. I read it in my... Um, late teen years, as I think probably many of my generation did, and it, it certainly um, stuck with me as a, you know, it, it's effectively a dystopian vision of, of what can happen, well, in part of the US where a totalitarian regime has taken over, extremely patriarchal, extremely religious, um, and told through the eyes of a, a woman living under that regime. Um, so it's been 30 years since that came out. Um, Margaret Atwood apparently didn't write the sequel because she was trying to cash in on the television show. Um, she wrote the sequel because she was um, horrified at the election of Donald Trump and, you know, was worried that elements of that vision were looking a little bit too close to reality, so she wanted to revisit it. Um, it's quite different to the original. Um, it's sort of three interlocking narratives, um, two young women, one living inside the regime, one outside um, in Canada, and the the sort of third character is a, you know, really fantastic one, I thought. She was in the original Aunt Lydia. She's the sort of controller of the women's sphere of the regime. Um, in the first book, she very much appeared a kind of 
um, one-dimensional kind of pure evil type character. Um, here we actually get to explore some of her nuance and she talks about how she came to be in that position and the moral compromises she made along the way. Essentially, she made a decision that to survive, she would cooperate with the regime um, and that really sort of drove her behaviour and decisions. And it's, a, you know, fascinating to see her kind of ex post justification for how she's what she's done and how she's ended up where she is. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a lovely bit right at, towards the beginning about you take the first step and to save yourself for the consequences, you take the next one. Uh, and uh, in times like ours, there are only two directions, up or plummet. I mean, I think it is about the way that you, you particularly in pow around power, you, you make one decision, you know, maybe for the right reasons, maybe for the wrong reasons, but, but you know, that's the decision you make. And then all of a sudden you discover it's kind of wound up dictating a whole series of subsequent decisions. Indeed. And then once you're there, it can be hard to let go of. And, you know, there's sort of the moment, the fork in the road in the book, and we'll try not to do too many spoilers, but, you know, making a decision of whether you hang on to that power and that place or, you know, whether you make the decision to try and bring down something that is ultimately quite evil in its effect. Yeah. And it's also beautifully written. It is indeed. I also had a lovely little um, quote from Art Lydia because she is yeah, she's, yeah, a, she's, she's a fantastic character. But, you know, this is exactly on the same point, on the kind of moral compromise point. She said, I numbered myself among the faithful for the same reason that many in Gilead did because it was less dangerous. What good is it to throw yourself in front of a steamroller out of moral principles and then be crushed flat like a sock emptied of its foot? Better to fade into the crowd, the piously praising, unctuous, hate-mongering crowd, Better to hell rocks than to have them held at you. Better for your chances of staying alive. You know, it is incredibly good at just nailing that, that sort of the heart of that conundrum, I think. Yeah. But then also quite personal, I thought. I mean, it talks about the way that even, even in Gilead there was love and that even in Gilead there was happiness. Uh, and, and I think that also sort of comes through. There's some lovely bits. I mean, one of my favourite bits was about, was about hair. So remember this is... <laughs> Um, uh, she's, she's not as young as, um, some of us still are. Uh, and she said, um, she says, it's also true that hair is about life. It's the flame of the body's candle. And as it dwindles, the body shrinks and melts away. I once had enough hair for a top knot in the days of top knots for a bun in the age of buns. But now my hair is like our meals here at Ardua Hall, sparse and short. <laughs> um, so uh, we probably shouldn't say too much more. No, the um, the other two stories, the young girls, you kind of there's a lot of spoiler alerts inherent in them, um, but also you know fantastic characters and a lot of humanity in those characters, which is nice in what is otherwise a pretty brutal read, but a very engaging read. So speaking of brutal reads. Um, <laughs> That takes us to Jess Hill and see what you made me do. Um, so uh, this, I think, is a—I mean, it's a fantastic book. It's an important book. Um, it succeeds in both talking about what you might loosely describe as the the theory, the the the, the understanding of domestic abuse, and I use that word extremely deliberately as she does, not domestic violence but domestic abuse, we can talk about that in a moment, um, as well as telling the um, 
individuals and almost inevitably harrowing stories um, uh, of their lives and 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 how domestic abuse has affected them and and why they've done what they've done um, and how they've reacted. Um, not an easy read, but I dare say you took a few things away from it. Yeah, it's certainly not an easy read, but it's an incredibly powerful one. I think I was reflecting on this. I think of all the books I've ever read, um, you know, I, I came in, I'd have to say, you know, almost entirely ignorant um, to the the sort of structures and, and the way this plays out in practice and I, I came away feeling like I had um, a really strong understanding of, you know, why this problem exists um, and that's because this is, you know, incredibly well researched. Um, you know, she delves into the academic literature, as you say, but, you know, she very populates it with, you know, stories of victims, stories of perpetrators, stories of people that work at the front line um, and she really brings all the complexity and nuance of the problem to the book. It is um, yeah, incredibly powerful. Yeah. And, and I think she's really unafraid to ask the hard questions mm -hmm. and often to get some really quite revealing answers. So, um, for example, she asks, um, okay, so why did he do it? Um, what was going on inside his mind? And, and she talks about the way there are a variety of different theories about that. Um, uh, the one she lands on, I think, is which is really interesting, is that primarily it's about shame. Mm. So primarily it's about the way that men feel that uh, it's usually men. Um, uh, we'll talk about that in a moment too. But um, uh, usually men um, feel that they have a certain role nevertheless feel that they are relatively powerless because of the way that things are pl have played out for whatever reason uh, and often find that um, abusing someone, more often than not a woman, um, uh, gives them at least for a short period of time, it gives them the feeling that their power, that power is back mm. and that consequently they don't have to be ashamed of who they are. And, and she, she sort of talks about it. I like that. She said, you know, it's, it's the shame there but it's the sense that I should be in control. So it's when shame and sense of entitlement come together that it's an extremely dangerous mix. Yeah. Um, uh, and she talks about the way that shame is an incredibly powerful emotion and indeed one that is actually hardwired into us because it's about um, essentially getting conformity in groups. If, if, you know, as a species, one of our great successes is being you know, acting collectively, then you need a way of ensuring that people act for the collective and that that technique is essentially the technique of shame, um, that we make people feel very uncomfortable if they don't do what is expected of them by the group. So it's it's actually driven by something that's really hardwired into us. Right, but of course everyone feels shame, men and yep, women feel absolutely. shame, so it is, it's the shame plus the expectation that, that you think you're entitled to that. So the sort of the patriarchal structures are sitting above all of this. Um, you know, what I thought she said, which was quite damning though, is that, you know, if we look at our national strategy to address this, um, it is focused on the question of those structures and changing attitudes and, um, you know, all of that is incredibly important. But, you know, her call is really, well, you know, that could take generations, you know, you know, gender equality and, um, you know, belief that you shouldn't hit your partner might take a very long time to come into effect, but people are dying now. Um, you know, that statistic, one woman a week killed 
by a partner in an intimate relationship. That is happening now. Police are called every two minutes for a domestic incident. Um, we actually need to make real changes on the ground in the way that um, the police are um, doing their job and enforcing this, the way in which we service the systems of support for women to leave relationships. We're currently saying, you know, you should leave, you should leave. And then they try and leave and they've got nowhere to go. And, you know, one of the many harrowing stories was a woman who left, couldn't find a refuge despite desperately seeking one and end up being killed by her partner. Um, so I think, you know, she has um, an incredible incredibly strong policy case to make as well, which... It, yeah, in fact, I think she says something like a third of the women who, who are killed um, uh, in domestic violence situations um, have already left. So, you know, in a sense, they're right to be afraid um, that if they leave, they may well um, be killed. Um, I think the policy prescriptions are actually really interesting. So, so I mean, she talks about a couple of... Um, uh, interventions that have been really successful, in particular one in North Carolina. Um, uh, and, and what I took away from that was a focus on protection as opposed to um, conviction, convicting the guilty, actually seemed to be the thing that was really important. Now, it was important to say to men who were abusers, if you step over the line, there will be really serious consequences and we mean it and you will actually face them. But coming from a perspective where the primary idea was to protect people, by and large women, as opposed to get a conviction. Whereas, of course, if you think about a lot of our policing, inevitably it's about, well, you know, how many convictions have you got? And as soon as you have that, then you wind up with people essentially looking for the traffic offences, as it were, rather than trying to make sure this is a situation um, I can see from the, the various things that I can observe that there really is a problem here and there's a significant chance that someone's going to get hurt and therefore how do I protect um, um, uh, women from being hurt? I actually took a slightly different thing Good. away from yeah. that case study. I mean, I thought to me the the powerful thing in what they did there and this actually they were successful in halving the domestic homicide rate so you know this was a very significant intervention but it was it was the police and the community showing that they were going to take it seriously so you know she makes the point that here you know you can breach intervention orders you know, nine or ten times before the police are actually going to do anything about it. Um, there what they said is, right, you are on notice. You know, you have done this. If you, you know, so much as step out of line a tiny bit, we're going to come for you. And we are not just going to come for you over that. If we can't get you on that, we'll find something else that you've done and we'll pull, you know, we'll pull out your criminal history and we'll reopen something else um, because we are going to get you if you do this. So, and it was a, a real signal that they were going to actively enforce the law and throw the book at anyone yeah. that stepped out of line. But for the purposes of protection is how I read it. Anyway, right. but, but I yeah. think, the, I think mm -hmm. the other thing that's very interesting about that example, she doesn't actually make this point, but I wondered if it's what was going on psychologically with all of that, is there were a series of public events at which they spoke to the um, those most likely to perpetrate, frankly, uh, and in effect they were making them particularly ashamed of offending. So, I, you know, I wonder if that was one of the things that was going on. It was essentially saying, you know, however much you might be ashamed of the situation you are in, um, uh, you will be even more ashamed if you commit any form of domestic abuse. I think that's right. But it was interesting, actually, the way they approached the men at the meeting. 
Um, it was also, uh, you know, we we see you, we're here for you. So there was, it was sort of a carrot and a stick approach. So yes, we're going to come after you and we're going to shame you and we're going to throw the book at you. Um, but we're also here to support you to stop doing this really bad thing. So I think that's actually that combination of, you know, helping the men see another way yep. as well. And look, it covers a huge number of other areas as well. Um, um, one of the things that I think it really does very well is um, you get this debate that says on the numbers, women commit as much domestic violence as men. Um, so why aren't we talking about that? Uh, and then she said, and and then on the other hand, you have not surprisingly any number of women's groups saying, yeah, but domestic abuse is much more of a problem for women than it is for men. And she does a lovely job of teasing apart the arguments and saying, well, um, what you're doing is that you're looking at only you're not looking at the whole problem here. And she contextualizes it and says it is absolutely true that women commit violence in domestic situations about as much as men. That is true. But what it completely passes over is that often that violence is in response to domestic abuse, often psychological. Um, that violence by women is, by and large, much, much, much less um, serious, um, apart from anything else, much less often um, results in fatalities, and is much, much less systemic. It's very, very unusual for it to be systemic, whereas men's violence is quite often systemic. So she does a, a really good job of talking about how two sides have completely talked past each other um, and explaining what it is that they're, they're not talking about. Yeah, I thought that was incredibly clever use of, um, yeah, well, pulling apart of the different data sets that people were using. Um, the other uh, chapter I wanted to mention because it really, you know, I found it incredibly harrowing was the the tales around the, the family court um, and the way the which the court has been sort of weaponised um, by abusive partners um, against the women and there are, you know, I think probably the worst stories of the book are in that chapter. Um, they're, you know, cases that you just absolutely cannot believe. You know, men with a history of abuse against their wives and their children, the woman gets up and leaves, takes the kids with her, he applies for custody um, and on the basis of a, a single expert report which infers that she is making up the abuse, um, no matter, you know, how many police reports or how many child um, services reports there are, custody is handed to the father. Those children are handed back to the fathers unsupervised. The woman is cut off from any contact for a period of time, the theory being that she's, you know, um, making them make false claims against a the parent. Alienation, the that's right. That. She's an alienator and therefore should be cut off from her children for a period of, you know, up to three months. And the... The sort of testimony of these children, the letters that they've written, um, the fear that they have of going back to this abusive parent, cut off from their only support, um, and this is actually being done to them by the system that's supposed to protect them. It is just heartbreaking. Yeah, as as the token lawyer on stage, um, uh, it doesn't come out all that well, um, uh, and yeah, it's pretty distressing for a system that's you know supposed to 
be helping, you know, clearly some of the time it actually makes it worse. Well, I mean, there was a quote there from the, uh, one of the barristers in the system and she just said, quite frankly, until we fix this, we should stop telling women to leave relationships because they are worse off once they've gone through this system, which, you know, must be the most damning indictment that you can imagine. Um, and, you know, and very relevant in the current debates, there's just another inquiry that's been announced into the family court system um, spurred on by Pauline Hanson, who's taking a particular view of the outcomes of the system. Um, and what Jess Hill is really saying is, you know, enough, we've had hundreds of these inquiries, we need a royal commission to get to the bottom of this. Um, I'm not a fan of the call for a royal commission about every single thing that's going wrong. But, you know, after reading that, I thought, God, I can't think of a better use of one yeah. than um, looking at this issue. And certainly for those who are interested in that issue, and frankly, that ought to be all of us, um, uh, I don't think you are going to read a better written uh, or more detailed expose of what is going on, what are the issues, um, uh, how, you know, and what might we do about it. So um, it's a terrific book. Um, so that's enough for the Prime Minister. What about – so now now we get to talk about all the things that the people here are really interested in, which is the one for the wonks. Uh, I did have someone say to me the other day, he said, oh, I always look forward to the list, but I just flick straight to the back for the, for the wonks list. And I thought, oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> um, so, Danny, the first book on the wonks list is one that you've already written a book review about. So you can talk about that one first. Um, so, look, this um, is appealing to my past life working at the ACCC, the Antitrust Paradigm by Jonathan Baker. Um, and there is a, you know, big debate going on, particularly in the United States, about whether we have been doing antitrust policy wrong. Um, so whether regulators have been too hands-off uh, particularly around the big digital firms um, and you know, there is now clearly um, a lot of them have pretty significant market power. Um, so Jonathan Baker is a really well-renowned scholar in this area. Um, he tr traces through the history of antitrust law um, going back to the, the late 19th century and at, at that point in time it was really actually about controlling the political power of big corporations um, it evolved over time and the Chicago School in the, the 70s um, basically advocated for a much more light touch and hands-off approach. They said mainly markets get it right and regulators should get out of the way. Um, that has been sort of the dominant thinking uh, in the profession for a time now and Jonathan Baker said, you know, essentially this is not serving us well. We need to look at the way we're enforcing antitrust laws. We need to think about particularly how we apply it to technology companies uh, because it's not leading to the right outcomes. And I'm told that if you go along with this new way of thinking, you're a hipster antitruster. Is that right? Uh, yes. That's so the, the sort of the derogatory term that was coined because some of the people that are sort of pushing this worldview, you know, happen to be in their 20s and 30s, shock horror. Um, so this is hipster antitrust. Jonathan right. Baker is most certainly not a hipster, I can assure you. Well, um, that takes us to Martin Wolf, who's probably hasn't been described as a hipster any times recently either, um, although he argues that, actually, you know, Essentially, this is a problem, and that the increasing concentration of firms is is, demand, is damaging liberal democracy. A piece he wrote uh, for the Financial Times. If you are looking for a quick summary on how um, thinking is evolving in this space about the way that um, increased market concentration is also leading to firms that are very good at lobbying, very good at getting their own way, very good at then collecting the rent. Um, 
Uh, that is then increasing inequality. Um, that's the, the sort of whole thesis. And he does put it together, um, you know, in I think just about 1,500 words in a sort of much neater way than I've seen it in lots of other places um, uh, and with all of the right links to everything else if you want to go and read some more. I have to say it's one of those articles I was like, damn, I wish I did that. <laughs> but it's hard to compete with Martin Wolf. But then Cornelia argues something rather different. Yes, have I read Corporate this? Corporate power. Beyond lobbying? Mm, okay, it's coming back to me. Oh, okay. I'll, 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 let me remind you. So, she, so her argument is that um, actually we shouldn't worry about, or we, you know, we might be worried about the fact that corporates are good at lobbying and getting their own way, but actually the big problem is that really big corporates, it's so much in government's financial interests to look after them, they don't even have to lobby. That. Um, for particularly the US government, the financial interests, uh, sorry, that, that if Facebook and Google do well, that is so much in the interests of the United States that inevitably US government policy will essentially be very favourable to them. That's before they've showed up to say what they would like. Look, I thought it was an interesting article. I wasn't entirely convinced by her thesis, I have to say. Uh, she had some examples that were stronger than others, um, you know, she was talking about, I think it was something around the banking sector and the fact that... Um, they were too you know, big to fail. That is true. Um, but to me that's not sort of equivalent, it's not an equivalent issue to lobbying. That's a, you know, it's a fundamental structural Oh, concern. but I think that's her point, is that the fundamental structures mean they never even have to lobby, that the fundamental structures mean that when you're a really large corporate, you are too big to fail and, indeed, you are too big to harm. Uh, that that you doing well as a corporation will so often be in the government's interest that they will do things that help you. Yeah, so I think that works for the banks. I'm less convinced for the other sectors of the economy. I think, you know, at the margin, yes, it might help hurt or help them, but whether that is alone the source of their power, I think there's a lot more going on. So what we need to chart. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> so that takes us to The Economist which, of course, draws most of the best charts. Um, uh, and indeed, for a long time, I thought was, you know, if you want to give people a crash course in how to write good charts or draw good charts, then basically giving them the latest issue of The Economist is a pretty good place to start. And so this is a lovely article um, uh, by Sarah Leo called Mistakes. We've drawn a few learning from our errors in data visualisation in which The Economist basically does self-criticism. Um, you know, with economist characteristics. Uh, and it talks about, you know, here are some of our charts and here's what's wrong with them. And, of course, what's fantastic about this is The Economist on a bad day is a lot better than most of us. And so when it takes, you know, what it's done on a bad day and says, well, this is how we could have made it better, it's a real masterclass um, in in what really, really good chart design looks like. What are the kind of things um, you have to think about? This is not merely just, you know, don't draw dual y-axis charts. Um, but uh, don't. <laughs> uh, this is, um, you know, how do you deal, how do you communicate really quite subtle pieces of data and, and information in ways that are clear to your audience? Uh, and it's and it's I think very honest about saying well look here are some things we did and they probably weren't that clear and here's how we might have taken what as I said for the rest of us would be quite a good chart and make it into a truly great one. 
So will there be a Grattan edition, John? <laughs> well, yes, I think we should ask all of the program directors to do a bit of self-criticism and we'll publish that accordingly. Um, so that takes us to Brahmin left and merchant right, rising inequality and the changing structure of political conflict, um, which is a title um, uh, is a little bit like the chart design um, uh, of Thomas Piketty. Now, you cannot read Thomas Piketty's new book unless you speak French. And I might add pretty well, because I understand it runs to a thousand pages, uh, called Capitalism and Ideology. Um, so sort of take his last book, um, capitalism is kind of like a little bit thicker than that and of course as I said at the moment in French but the good news is that the slides are in English uh, and so we've given you the slides. as I said the slides are not very beautiful by the standards of the economists but they are legible uh, and they show us something really interesting they show that um, uh, essentially it used to be true that uh, for example in Australia uh, that people who had low levels of education tended to vote for the ALP and people who had high levels of education tended to vote for uh, the Liberal National Party. Now, that is no longer true. Uh, so increasingly, people with high education vote for left-wing parties. People with low levels of education vote for right-wing parties. And here's the big but. What um, uh, Thomas Piketty does is that he shows that this is going on in countries around the world. This is not an Australian phenomenon. This is a global phenomenon. Uh, and um, uh, it's happening around the world, and it happens, he does, as you would expect of Thomas Piketty, lots of very careful analysis to show that this is not the impact of, you know, just incomes or, you know, changing ages or something. So he controls for all of those things very methodically and then says, no, no, this is still a really big effect. Essentially, increasingly high-income people work, are voting for left-wing parties and vice versa. Um were you persuaded? Is this what's going on? Um, well, you know, interesting if we look at the results of the federal election um, and we don't have the kind of underlying survey data, so, you know, we have to be cautious about what we can say using voting patterns by electorate. But certainly, I mean, we can observe that the well-off electorates, um, the ones, you know, we might suspect would have been... Um, filled with people that were likely to go backwards from some of the, the Labor Party policies around um, franking credits and negative gearing. Um, they tended to swing on average towards the Labor Party, um, in contrast, the, the sort of the poorer electorates on the fringes of the cities and regional areas were the ones that swung the other way. Um, you know, they were the ones that you might think may have been better off under a kind of a higher tax and, and spending model. Um, so we certainly see, you know, some evidence that this is going on here. Yeah. Um, uh, so I encourage you to, if you do have a look at this um, and you can't make it through all 84 slides, not quite drawn with the same skill that The Economist might have done, um, uh, do flick to the back where he talks about what are the policy implications of this. Because I think it's a really interesting thing about, well, you know, what is really going on here? There's clearly a part of this which is about migration uh, and essentially people from high levels of education um, by and large, pro-migration, um, people with low levels of um, education typically less happy about migration and uh, political parties are tending to split um, that way. So I think that's one of the things that's going on. He nevertheless does sort of come out and say that um, he thinks that 
you know, if you reduced inequality, this effect would disappear. I've got to say, I was not completely convinced by that. I think he'd done a very good job on the previous 79 slides of convincing me it was actually had nothing to do with inequality at all. Um, so... Um, I think he, you know, just had to put in a plug for his previous work perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe it'll be clearer. Maybe it's a lot clearer if you read it in French. Um, so that takes us to the last one on the list, which is why are the prices so damn high? Um, a piece by Eric Helland and Alexander Tabarak, uh, who, of course, is one half of the Marginal Revolution um, blog site for those who who read it on a regular basis, um, asking why it is that we pay so much for education and health and should we be worried about it, um, which is something lots of people have spoken about and I think it's a lovely article talking about that. I haven't read it, but I will totally agree. I'm sure you're correct. <laughs> um, well, we all know what, what Danny's going to be reading for um, the holidays. Um, Sorry, I didn't get the heads up. I would be asked to speak on the wonks list. <laughs> quizzed, quizzed on the wonks list. I apologise. Okay. Um, uh, but I assume that you would have read everything on the wonks list as a true wonk. I have read a fair proportion of them. <laughs> um, so I think that brings us to the end of the list. Um, so uh, let me uh, finish with a few um, thank yous. Um, so firstly, uh, thank you to readings. Um, so for those of you who are inspired by our discussion, uh, you can buy um, four of the books that we have talked about. Um, uh, from a table that readings will have up the back. I'm afraid the one that you can't get um, for The Economist Wonks Amongst You is Order Without Design, but it's only the 3rd of December. Uh, and so if you are quick, I am sure you can get onto Amazon and order your copy for it to arrive before Christmas. If you have any planners in your life that you really want to needle over the Christmas break, um, that, <laughs> get that in your would, order. That would be an excellent present. Um, in terms of uh, the, um, the article and the wonks list, um, uh, all of the articles we've talked about are available online. Um, and uh, if you go to the electronic version of this document on the Grattan website, then um, it has links that you can click through um, and hopefully uh, get all of your reading in order, at least printed out, uh, to take to the beach. Um, and then that takes me to a number of thank yous. Um, uh, this is very much a team effort at Grattan. Everybody has an opinion at Grattan as to what should be on that list. Uh, I think I, I think it's truly everybody. Uh, fortunately, of course, Grattan doesn't have any of the beliefs that this is in fact a democracy and it's ultimately a completely autocratic chief executive's call <laughs> as to what goes onto the list. Um, so I'm afraid if your favourite book um, didn't make it on, that wasn't because of lack of good trying from the Grattan staff. Uh, it was because of my, idios my idiosyncrasies. But I did want to thank uh, in particular Greg Moran, um, uh, Kat Clay, Emily Mullane and Lucy Percival for their work um, in putting this together. Um, uh, um, lots of other people, as I said, contributed, uh, including to writing up the blurbs and, and putting it together. But they, I think, did a lot of the heavy lifting. Um, uh, we, in fact, have a Grattan Institute book club that sits around on a regular basis uh, and pretends to do real work um, talking about, you know, all the books we've read that we might put on the list. Um, and that, I think, has um, certainly been really helpful in, in putting together this really strong selection of things that are, as I said at the beginning, readable, uh, have something to say um, uh, about um, politics, uh, policy or power uh, and published in the last 12 months. I'd like to thank 
um, uh, the State Library of Victoria and Deborah in particular for that introduction, um, uh, not only for tonight's event but for um, the relationship between, uh, sorry, over the year. Um, I think it really adds a lot um, uh, and to both organisations and I think says a lot about both of us um, that it has worked so well as a venue um, to talk about these important issues um, with people in person. Uh, I would like to um, thank my co-host for tonight, Danielle Wood. Thank you for reading the books. Um, it is no small feat to actually read every page of all of them. Um, uh, so thank you um, very, very much. And it's been, I think, a fantastic discussion. So thank you very much, Danielle. And then finally, to thank you all very much for coming uh, to what will be Grattan's last event. Um, uh, if you uh, open this thing, somewhere inside it, you should get a little card that explains how you can donate to Grattan if you would like to do so. And if you're missing out on your card, you can nevertheless go to page two, where it gives you the web address where you can donate. Because unfortunately, um, running something like Grattan costs money. Uh, and... Um, employing the people we do to do the work that we do, which we think makes a difference to Australian policy, costs money, uh, and we would appreciate your support. Um, unfortunately, we do live in a world in which the public interest doesn't have a lot of friends, uh, and to the extent it has friends, essentially uh, you're in the room. So thank you for coming. We hope you've enjoyed tonight's event. We hope you've enjoyed um, a year of Grattan's events. Um, I won't say we hope you've enjoyed all of Grattan's publications because the last one for the year, uh, Grattan's um, Stephen Duckett's report on um, private health insurance uh, will be released in about three or four hours. Um, uh, but thank you for your support for the year uh, and we look forward to seeing you at many more events in 2020. Thank you. Grattan Institute is uniquely positioned to bring an independent, rigorous and practical lens to big issues in public policy, with the capacity to talk honestly to both sides of politics. We maintain this unique position through the generosity of the public and our affiliate companies. If you would like to find out more about contributing to our continued independence, head to our website to donate. 